Thank you for listening to the audio podcast of the King's Crossing Church of Christ. To learn more or subscribe, please visit our website at kingscrossingcoc.com. that we took some time to celebrate our intern, Taylor Edmondson. She really did do a good job this summer. Um, It's always fun for me getting to be there in the office and to be on kind of the front row of things happening at church. And Taylor was a a big part of everything, did a wonderful job with the teens this summer. And if you haven't got to meet all the people she's got with her, she's got some family who came down to visit. So would you help me welcome her family as well? It's, uh, it's, uh, I was telling him, I know it's a big sacrifice to, to share one of your children with a church at a faraway location for a summer, and they're from New York, and so they've had quite a haul to get down here and have quite a journey to go back over the next few days, so uh, we certainly wish them well. Um, I know we've already referenced a couple of times today the people who are worshiping with us online. I got a message from someone this morning I wanted to tell you about. Uh, her name is Ann Bates. She's friends with some of you. Uh, she's a longtime resident of Rockport and a member at the Rockport Church of Christ. Uh, her husband had been ailing for several years, and she had not been able to attend church services anywhere for about the last five years. After his passing in December of 2020, she has now moved to Corpus Christi uh, to to stay with her daughter. And uh, anyway, she's now closer to us, and she has not yet been able to be with us in person, is not sure when she'll be able to be with us in person, but I'm, I'm pretty sure she's watching us right now, and she indicates that she also would like to be identified as a member here. So would you join me in welcoming Anne? So... Yeah, it's an amazing, amazing world we're living in now, but uh, those streaming services, there are people tuning in, there are people watching, and so we're, we're glad you're with us, and uh, we're glad that you're uh, choosing to, to join us in worshiping the Lord. Uh, today, this is the last of my series on Abraham. We've been referring to him as the late bloomer. Pretty amazing to think that all this stuff we've looked at over all these weeks, these huge things that happened in this guy's life, all happened after he was 75 years old. You know, what a, what a life he must have had. And so we're getting now to the conclusion of his story. As we reflect on him in this final story, I was thinking about the Bristol Cathedral. This place is located in Bristol, England, and you can tell from looking at it, it is a really impressive piece of architecture. It's, it's connected to the Church of England and uh, contains numerous styles. If you were to travel and walk throughout it, there's all kinds of different chambers and sections, and much of it's very awe-inspiring and beautiful as you look at the inside. It includes several different styles, such as the older Norman decorations. It's got Gothic. It's even got Gothic revival style in it. It started off as the dream of a wealthy landowner named Robert Fitzharding, and it began as a monastery. But here's the really amazing thing about this cathedral. Its construction took 657 years. 657 years, more than double the life of our nation, right, to complete this one structure. And of course, the original design might have been a bit simpler, but over time, there were other people who cared about, what Mr. Fitzharding cared about, that continued to build and contribute on what might have started off as a simple dream that he had, 
But isn't it incredible to think of something that one person was able to get going, but because everyone else cared about the same thing and dreamed together, it became something that really one person or even a group of people in one lifetime were not capable of achieving on their own. It was a vision that spanned generations and even centuries for this place. I'm reminded as I look at Abraham's story and the promises of God that if all the dreams I have for my life, if all the dreams that I'm trying to connect my life to are things that could be achieved within my own lifetime or simply by myself, I probably need to dream bigger. If it's big enough that God's going to be involved, it really ought to be something bigger than just me getting the next promotion, the next thing I wanted to buy, the next achievement or accolade. You know, there's all kinds of things we settle for, but dreams involving God should be something so much bigger than one person or even one generation could contain. So the truth is that God did start to bless Abraham and his family in Abraham's lifetime. But as we know about Abraham's story, which has actually become our own story in Christ, God was going to do something so much bigger than he could have even really conceived of. Even for God to say, I'll bless all peoples through your descendants, or you're going to have so many descendants that you couldn't even begin to count them. There's something about that that's so much, uh, it's just so much more than Abraham could have conceived of. And so um, we also can build by looking at Abraham and recognizing that as he got older, he really was preparing to make his departure from this life. It's typical of our culture that we try to avoid even bringing up or talking about the subject of death. In the medical community, death is thought of as kind of an embarrassment or a failure, right? The goal is to cure every disease and to keep you living forever, and so we're really quiet about passings, or maybe we avoid them at all costs, but there's something to be said about giving some dignity to passing from this life into the next life. As Scripture describes Abraham, it talks about him being old and full of years and richly blessed by God. This is a guy who's at a place where he knows it's okay for him to transition. He's had a full life. Abraham can help us understand what it means to die surrounded by hope, which is the way that he went. But there's a couple of major events here at the end of Abraham's life that this story hinges around. The first involves the death of his wife, Sarah, many years before he passed. Sarah died at 127 years old, Isaac would have been getting close to 40 at the time. And so there's the story. We're not going to spend any time on it this morning, but Abraham does some negotiating to purchase a field with a cave where he's going to begin you know, burying his family members. And so she's placed there in this resting place. Eventually, Abraham will join her there. One thing that is significant about the purchasing of this field in this cave is that up until this point, Abraham is kind of this paradox in that Abraham is a wealthy person who is also a landless sojourner, right? He's, he's really wealthy and he has many things, but he also has no home of his own, really. He's always on the go and he's traveling, has been for years and years and years. And even so, he's referred to in the text, they refer to him as God's prince. This is someone who is highly favored by God. But God has promised he's going to give him this land. And with the purchase of this field, this is the first transaction where all that begins to happen. Now he has a permanent place 
in this land he's been promised. And it's a, it's a small section of it, but this is where we begin to see that transfer of blessing over to Abraham's household uh, as, as things progress. And so the next big question is, how will the generations continue? Now that Sarah has passed, Abraham is confronted with that harsh reality that no one lives forever, and he begins to turn his attention toward Isaac. So I want to read a few verses beginning in Genesis chapter 24 and verse 1. It says, Abraham was now very old, and the Lord had blessed him in every way. If you've been joining us for the last couple of months as we've looked at all the things he's experienced, isn't it a weird thing to think of having a blessed life that was as difficult as Abraham's life? I mean, he's gotten caught up in wars he wanted nothing to do with. He's seen death and destruction firsthand. He's had terrible things go on with his family members. He's had huge conflict within his household. Even so, as is always the case, the blessings of God outweigh the troubles of the world, and it's still possible to refer to him as someone blessed in every way. He said to the senior servant in his household, the one in charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh. I want you to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I am living, but will go to my country and my own relatives and get a wife for my son Isaac. Uh, so I'll just mention in general, Hebrew people are very modest uh, you could compare them to much of the ancient world, and usually the Jewish people would have more clothes on. They were just typically modest. And it's the case several times in Scripture where something might refer to genitalia kind of euphemistically. So the reference here to putting your hand under my thigh probably means he was placing his hand very close to the organ through which uh, Abraham would procreate. So this is a promise. This is a mission that has to do with future generations. And so that's really what that, that gesture symbolizes. This has to do with the future of generations that come from me. So the servant heard what he said, and the servant asked him in verse 5, what if the woman is unwilling to come back with me to this land? Shall I then take your son back to the country you came from? So if she won't come here, should I take him back there? Abram says, make sure that you do not take my son back there. Abram said, the Lord, the God of heaven, who brought me out of my father's household in my native land and who spoke to me and promised me on oath, saying, to your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you so that you can get a wife for my son from there. If the woman is unwilling to come back with you, then you will be released from this oath of mine. Only do not take my son back there. These little bits of conversation, you kind of get a picture of what a faithful person that Abraham is. I'm just astounded at how effortlessly he could say something like, well, I've prayed about it, and God is going to send help to make it happen. God already promised me that I'm going to have generations and generations, so I'm sending you back on this errand. I've talked to God about it, and God is going to send his angel to prepare the way. I mean, the amount of confidence with which he spoke on that. I'm reminded of, um, there was a lady named Opal Boggs. She's no longer living, but she went to the church that I preached at in little, little uh, Rosebud, Arkansas, a little tiny church in a tiny town. And Miss Boggs became the person I would always go to if I really didn't know what else to do. You know, I'm just early 20s, didn't have a clue what I was doing, trying to figure ministry out. 
and I had a situation that I was really nervous about. The first funeral that I ever preached, it was such a contentious family situation that I had to get the police to attend the funeral, not to honor the man, but to make sure it didn't blow up. And so I was a nervous wreck about it, and I remember I went to Miss Boggs' house and sat with her and just told her, Miss Boggs, I don't... I don't know what to do. I'm afraid. I'm nervous. I've never preached a funeral before. I've hardly gone to a funeral before. I don't know what you do or say at funerals. And I was nervous about all this. And I remember she looked at me just as calmly as can be. She said, Mark, I'm going to pray for you and God's going to help you and you're going to be fine. You know, just not a, it was unfazed completely by it. I'm going to pray for you and you're going to be fine. I love that level of faith that he has, that confident faith. That's something to grow into, isn't it? But I also appreciate the way that Abraham is focused on moving forward. No, we're not going to compromise our faith. We're not going to intermingle with all these Canaanites living around us. We'll be nice to them, but we're not going to become like them. And no, we're not going back to where we came from. God's the one who brought us here. God's going to help us continue from here. So those are the only two rules of how this is going to work. We're not compromising our faith, and we're not just going to tuck tail and run back home because we don't know what to do. We're going to trust God to open the next door that needs to be opened. In this story, we don't know the name of the servant. I don't believe the name of the servant is given. We assume it's Eliezer, who before Isaac, before Ishmael, was originally slotted in Abraham's mind to be his heir. This is a really prominent servant in his household, and uh, we see that he has a wonderful relationship with Abraham. And so... Uh, the servant packs up some things, takes some people with him. They bring some possessions to give as gifts if they're able to successfully find a wife for Isaac. And so they travel to a place called Nahor, which is incidentally the name of Abraham's brother. So probably his brother had also seen his, his influence increase. And so he travels to a place called Nahor, and it's evening time when they arrive. They get there pretty late in the day. It's on the first day of arrival, and they're tired. And so they go over to where there's a spring, and the young ladies would be coming to draw water for their households. And he kneels down, and he prays this beautiful prayer. He says, Lord, God of my master Abraham, make me successful today and show kindness to my master. You see his love and admiration for Abraham, even in what he prays. But he says, Lord, I've come here to this spring where people draw water. May it be the case that when I see a young woman and I say to her, let me have a drink, that if she says, hey, I'll give you a drink and I'll also draw water for your thirsty camels, and camels can drink a lot of water, if she does that, may that be the one that you've chosen for Isaac and I'll know that you've been kind to my master. And my favorite phrase in this whole story is when it says, before he had finished praying. Before he had finished praying, Rebecca is already walking up with a jar on her shoulder. His eyes aren't even open yet. He hasn't even said the amen, and she is already standing there this late in the day after a long and hard journey. I don't know about you, I'm reminded of that great story in Acts chapter 12 where, frankly, the church is fearing because Peter has been arrested. It seems that the people in charge have bad intentions for him. They're wanting to execute him to get the people riled up and excited. And so it's gloom and doom for Peter. The Christians have gotten together in this household, and they are praying fervently, begging God to somehow miraculously spare Peter's life. And there, 
God had already been intervening, has gotten him out of the prison, and Peter starts knocking on the door where they're gathered. There's a young girl there named Rhoda who goes to answer the door, and she's so excited that she sees Peter, she forgets to open the door for him and runs back to tell everybody that Peter's outside. They, of course, tell her that she's just being emotional and delusional, and they don't believe anything she says, and they keep on praying for God to release Peter. And then finally, finally, she persists, and they open the door. But, you know, it's, it's the case sometimes that even while you're still praying and asking God for help, help is already knocking at your door. Like, it's hard to pay attention to the help available because you're so distracted by asking for it. It's awesome when that happens in your life. But this is a situation where the servant is praying for God to be good to Abraham, and God has already done something to answer that prayer and send him the help that he needed. And so he sees her. He asks her if he can have a drink. And, of course, she gives him a drink, and then she starts putting water down, giving water to all of his camels, And then he gets excited. He's brought some nice jewelry with him. He places the jewelry on her. He tells her the mission that he's been sent on and why he's there. She goes and invites him to go back to her family. And of course, they are distant relatives of Abraham. So these are people who share the same faith. It was what he was looking for. And so they have this wonderful conversation about the providence of God. He tells the family, look, I want to take your daughter back. I want her to marry Isaac. All this is what I prayed about, and then she showed up and did it, and they said exactly what we would all have to say. This is just one of those God things. You know, who are we to get in the way of this? It seems that this is what God worked out to happen, and they said, but let's make sure she consents to this and that this is what she wants to do. It's nice to see that happen at some point in Abraham's life with one of these women involved that people actually asked her opinion on what she wanted for her life, and they said, will you go with him? She said, yes, and so they pack up. Her family gives her a a wonderful blessing. I thought we had a nice blessing here this morning. Appreciated Justin's words and his prayer, but they give her a blessing very similar uh, to what Abraham's own blessing had been. They wish for her to have generations of thousands upon thousands, and they said, may your grandchildren possess the gates of their enemies. You know, may, may your family have success in all things. Then there's this beautiful story about Isaac and Rebekah when they see each other for the first time. It says about Isaac in Genesis 24 and verse 63, he went out to the field one evening to meditate, and as he looked up, he saw camels approaching. Rebekah also looked up and saw Isaac. She got down from her camel. I don't know if you've ever ridden a camel They're a lot bigger than riding a horse. So she must have been pretty limber to get down so quickly and easily. But she hops off of this camel and asks the servant, who is that man coming in the field coming to meet us? And the servant says, well, he's my master. So she took her veil and covered herself, which is like the ancient world equivalent to, hey, there's no ring right here. Right? So she likes what she sees. She puts her veil on to show that she's available. She's a virgin. And then um, the servant told Isaac all that he had done. Isaac brought her into the tent of his mother, Sarah, and he married Rebekah. So she became his wife, and he loved her. What a nice phrase. She became his wife, and he loved her. And Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. It is painful to watch the previous generation 
pass on to the next life. It's a hard thing to say goodbye to the people who have been our inspirations and examples, but we find some comfort by the joy we receive in looking at the next generation. The joys of children and grandchildren help us cope with the loss of parents and grandparents. It's a new source of happiness. So the greatest task for any of us in life It is really the same task that Abraham was thinking about near the end of his life, passing the promise, transferring the promise from myself, from our generation, to the next generation. What would we want to say about our life? I've tried to follow God. My my walk has been imperfect, but God has always been faithful. God has always been good to me. I found that in serving the Lord, I have such a better life than I would have if I rejected the Lord and in living as one in the promises of God, as part of the family of God, I want to transfer that to the next generation. I also want them to know and experience the promises of God. And so what I wanted to do for the rest of my time this morning, I wanted to look at these actions that Abraham took so close to the end of his life and to reflect a little bit on how we ought to go about transferring that promise to the next generation, making preparations so that we can also one day die old, full of years, and even if not old and full of years, certainly as people who've been blessed and have walked with God the whole way. First of all, I would simply remind us again that in order to embrace God's dreams, we need companions. If I try to think as big as God is thinking, if I try to dream as big as God is dreaming, then the church becomes an immediate necessity. If the only thing I care about is myself and my promotions and my income and my possessions, that's, that's really small and it's really petty, and it doesn't take too much to accomplish that. But if I'm going to get serious about making the kind of impact on the world that Christ envisions his church would make, immediately I'm out of my league, right? I can't do it on my own. I see a need for my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. It's going to take all of us together, and even more than that, I've got to think about the next generation because we won't get the job done by the time I'm through here. We have to start embracing companions because God's vision is bigger than what my life could contain. We're definitely in a season here where we're having to We're all struggling to hit that refresh button. You know, we feel like we're kind of getting past this pandemic situation and it kind of rears its head again and we keep wondering, are we ever going to get past this thing completely? But we are in a season of having to reflect on what have we done up to this point and what are we trying to do beyond this point? This is a season for us to start dreaming and imagining once again how God might be at work through us. We have many good efforts that now we have opportunity to refresh and renew. We may also have other efforts of things we've never tried before. We've got to be thinking about these things, but understand that our companionship in Christ is a necessary component of how we'll get any of that done. A second thing I'm challenged to think about in Abraham's life, I'm going to phrase it this way, is that in order to really move forward into God's dreams and pass on this promise, you've got to let go of what is biting you. I'm going to borrow this phrase from from Jordan Peterson. He's a a public intellectual, a psychologist, and I I was listening to him a few days ago talking about this principle where he does a lot of counseling with people, and he says, the problem I'll have is I'll be talking to this person, and it's really clear that in their life, the thing that is most dragging them down, pulling them away from what's good for them, making them miserable, it's this thing they're determined to hang on to. 
And he says, it's like you've got this dog that's just biting you and biting you and you just won't let go of the dog. So he mentions an example of someone he was counseling who had this mother that would call them three times a day. There's no harm in talking to mom three times a day. That's a wonderful thing. But the problem was every time mom calls, mom would interrupt anything else going on and say, you are such a disappointment as a human being. I can't believe you do what you do. I'm just so irritated with you. I'm so frustrated with you. You don't care enough about me. You don't do enough for this family. You know, just try and destroy this person with her words three times a day. And the question is, why do you let her keep calling you? And the response is, I have to. It's my mom. And he said, you know, sometimes you've got to create a healthy boundary. But what are the things in your life that persist in discouraging you, making you feel unworthy, making you feel unuseful? Whatever those things are that persist in that, sometimes the right decision is to say, here's the limit. And unfortunately, in that case, by imposing some limits, the relationship with the mother actually improved once it was pretty clear. You're not going to just call me at work in the middle of the day and tell me I'm worthless. Like, you don't get to do that anymore. But to set healthy parameters for yourself, what is it that is draining you? And whatever that is, it's okay to make some decisions about where you need some distance and where you need some space to be a healthy and whole person. And if you're not sure what that thing is in your life, You might ask your family, they're usually painfully aware of it. What's the real thing that I just need to back off of some and let go of a little bit? In Abraham's case, he said, you know what we're going to do? We're not going to give in to the faith of these people surrounding us. We saw what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. We see some of the things these people are doing. They don't share our values. And so we're going to love them and we're going to be nice to them, but we're also going to keep them at arm's length. We're not going to become like them in what we do. We're not moving back to where we came from. We're not going backwards, we're moving forwards. We have to let go of what isn't helping us. We have to release, especially the things that are biting us. Conversely, we need to grab hold of what is building us. Grab hold of what is building you. In your life, what is the thing that fills your cup? Who are the people that you know that when you're around them or when you've talked to them, suddenly you feel like you matter and you feel like you're loved and you feel like maybe you do have something to offer. Who is it that fills your cup and makes you more joyful and hopeful? We want to surround ourselves with such people. I want to pause and also say, especially to those of you who are unmarried, marriage is certainly within the scope of how to apply this conversation and all that's going on with Abraham and Isaac looking for a wife for his son. You know, a lot of people get in a marriage, and because they don't like how it's going, they start spending all kinds of money and creativity and energy on things other than their marriage to maybe try and find joy or fulfillment somewhere else. A lot of times that ends very badly, but so often with more investment in this relationship that you've committed to and more investment in the people God has given you to love, you could actually build the life that you'd like a lot more by using the same energy and money and creativity in the relationship that you have. But Abraham said, I don't want my son married to someone who isn't part of the promises of God and hasn't connected their lives to that. Um, The same sentiment is echoed strongly in the New Testament. Paul says, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. That's a reference to oxen on the field. You put them together under a single yoke. 
It says, don't be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? That's a demonic reference. Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, he's quoting some scriptures here, I will live with them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. And I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. It is the case that in your life, if you choose to marry, there is no one who's going to have a bigger impact on the shape and direction of your life than your spouse will. And the same will be true of you in their life. It's important for us to think about the person I'm going to connect myself to. Do they make me want to be a better person? Is their biggest goal in life to get to heaven and to bring me with them somehow by some effort? We have to be thinking about this person who has such an influence on me. I want it to be someone that I admire, someone who inspires me. I like to look at Rebecca, and even in her brief interactions in this story, you already know so much about her. Now, on the one hand, sure, it says she's pretty. She was pretty. That's wonderful. But there's so much more to her than her looks. Look at what she does. She's a hard worker. She's there at the end of the day doing the hard job, bringing water back for her household. She's hospitable. She's kind. She's generous. And when he says, you want to go to this place you've never been before to marry someone you've never seen before, taken on faith. She sees that God has got a hand in this. She's a courageous person on her faith. There is so much to admire about her. Even beyond the scope of marriage, again, it's worth us thinking about the people you have in your life. Who do you surround yourself with? If it's someone who is inspiring you to be a better Christian, to make you want to be more dedicated, hold on to those people and keep them close. Let them help you to grow. Likewise, we look at this story and see the importance of praying and deciding, praying and deciding. I love the servant's actions. He kneels and he gives it to God, but then he also proceeds to make a choice, trusting that God is involved and that God is helping. Sometimes I think we can get crippled if we're waiting too long for what you might call a sign where I've prayed about it and I've prayed about it and I've prayed about it, but until the heavens open and the right thing drops out of the sky or there's some kind of sign or symbol that makes it abundantly clear, you might just want to keep holding out and holding back and waiting for the perfect scenario. But the thing to do is to pray about it, to ask God for his help, and sometimes you just need to make a decision and move on based on what God has placed in front of you trusting that God will make up for what you lack. So as we pray and as we move forward, finally we would couple this with trusting and reflecting. That's what Abraham does. He trusts and he reflects. The servant trusts and then reflects on what has happened. When you speak of the actions of God in this world, because Scripture contains some highly unusual miraculous stories of some things that have happened, we tend to want to think of the actions of God as if they must be something that is supernatural, spectacular, magical, attention-grabbing, but 
Most of the time, the way that God works in this world is in the everyday circumstances where we live, in the things that are present in our daily lives. It's the people that maybe God put in your life at the right time, and it's the case that in reflecting, you can't see what God's doing ahead of time, but after it's passed, we can look back and say, I trusted God, and I stepped out, you know, I prayed, and I acted, and now I look back and see that God was with me the whole time. I get faith for the future and courage for the future because I can see all the ways that God was faithful as we went. But not usually in splitting the heavens open and yelling at you from a cloud, but instead through the everyday circumstances, the people that you share your life with. So we pray, we decide, we trust, and in reflecting, we get the fuller picture of all that God has done for us. Maybe this morning there's some way that you're needing to step out. Maybe we could pray for you and encourage you. If you'd like, you could come forward and talk to us at the front. We'd be happy to have you visit with one of our elders who will be scattered throughout the room, available to speak with you and to pray with you. Uh, maybe there's something else you'd like to let us know about, even if you're just interested in membership at our church, you want to know what it involves to become a Christian. Uh, we've got these codes you can scan with the camera app on your phone. It's also printed in your bulletin, and that's an easy way to contact us uh, during the week and let us on staff know uh, what we can do to help. But whatever your needs are this morning, we would invite you to come forward, respond however you need to, while together we stand and sing.